One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman Podcast. On today's episode, we discuss Freedom Day... And you ask us, could Boris Johnson's government survive the reimposition of coronavirus restrictions? We're a double act on today's podcast because poor Anush has COVID and um, has been quite poorly. So it's just you, me, Stephen, to discuss the weekend that has been and the the bright outlook for England on this Freedom Day. Over the weekend, obviously, we had a terrific Sunday morning with this big government U-turn. Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are now isolating, having been in contact with Sajid Javid, who has covid They did this terrible U-turn, having initially announced that they would be taking part in a trial, which meant that they didn't have to isolate. And then they faced quite a big backlash and reversed that decision quite quickly. But it all comes against this, this bigger backdrop of England losing basically all legal coronavirus restrictions today, while cases absolutely soar. And as well as, I suppose, the health concerns around increases in hospitalizations and deaths, there's also just a concern about what this unrestricted spread of the virus might look like just in terms of very high case numbers and the impact that lots and lots of people isolating will have on businesses and society in general. Stephen, what did you make of the weekend that we've just seen? I found it a fascinating U-turn, right? Because... I don't know about you, I can I can get my head around, obviously it was the right decision to U-turn, right? One of the underappreciated strengths of this government, particularly, in, well, actually with Boris Johnson throughout his career, but even more so, again, like now he's had his sort of like Dom Cummings hysterectomy, as it were. His natural instinct, which is always to like go, oh, this is too much hassle, let's just U-turn. Which, you know, in general, right, one of the problems political parties and governments have is they kind of go like, no, we'll look weak, we'll look awful, and then they just end up having to U-turn later when more people have noticed it. But I am nonetheless morbidly fascinated by how someone could be politically aware enough to understand them. And obviously, mathematically, yeah, I accept it's perfectly plausible, you know, for all of those people to be in to be in the pilot, right? Fine. But I, I am just... My mind is is blown by the existence of someone politically stupid enough to go, hey, this seems like a good public-facing line that won't annoy the voters, the press, and Conservative MPs, while being 
not so politically stupid as to after three hours to go, okay, I guess we'd better U-turn on that one. But it obviously, of course, has, has opened up all of the sort of usual questions about about the setup. But yeah, what did what did you make of it watching it sort of unfold? Well, because I have a healthy work-life balance, I, I woke up to, to see that they had announced this thing and you turned on it all while I was still asleep. <laughs> so this all happened during my Sunday morning lie-in, I, I mean, which I think speaks volumes about how quick it really was. I mean, I, I'm willing to take a lot of criticism, but I feel like 11.40 or whatever it is, is not a healthy work-life balance. That's just, so listeners should know that in a couple of Weeks ago, I discovered that Alva needs a huge amount of sleep. Which I don't get, I would add. This came up in the office and I completely failed to control my contempt. I know it's also a ridiculous thing to have contempt for. But yeah, 11.30, that's not a work-life balance. That's that's being a narcoleptic in my book. <laughs> well, that's because I don't get enough sleep during the week. But anyway, that's a digression. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not actually because the, the thing that you turn actually really reminded of speaking of conversations in the office was the day after the Telegraph story about being pinged through walls. I said, do you know, what? I think I'm just going to delete the app. We've got a connecting wall. And and Alva, you gave me this kind of like sort of this much more justifiable look of contempt. And I, my immediate reaction was to kind of go like, well, you're not my mother. I'm going to delete if I want. And then in about two minutes under, to be honest, not that much pressure. I was like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I feel bad. <laughs> I'll put it back on the phone. And I thought that was going to be the most undignified U-turn in the run-up to, to Freedom Day. Yeah, I think I shamed you because your attitude towards the app prompted me to message an MP who has been isolating twice with coronavirus or has been has been a close contact of someone with coronavirus twice Has so and so has been isolating alone in their London flat really far away from their family for two weeks you know with one day of freedom in between and you stating your intention to delete the app reminded me to check in with this poor MP so I'm sure that's probably what prompted your own U-turn but I think that it's interesting because we were just discussing it afterwards and the thing about being pinged by the test and trace app is obviously an only only a small part of the politics of the reopening but it's become one of the focal points and I'm kind of amazed that people around Westminster didn't understand the political salience of it weeks ago. I am amazed that MPs have been so cavalier about admitting to delete it like to having deleted it weeks ago um, I mean for the people who, for whose you know for whom the politics of that makes sense the people who are, are skeptical about that sort of thing, you know, fine, that, that makes total sense. But the people who are not publicly of that view and, you know, who are worried about rising rates of infection and so on, I think the way that they privately all admit that they've deleted it was just not a smart move politically. And I believe that some political parties, you know, I, I think my understanding is that the Liberal Democrats have put in a, a request with the Conservative Press Office to confirm that all of their MPs have still got the app and I think you know this was this was just going to be such an obvious political football some MPs really really understood that and have been very careful about following the rules and sort of and doing everything that they've been asking of the public even if that means spending weeks alone in a flat in London really far away 
from their family or whatever. Some MPs have really understood the politics of it, I think, and then a lot didn't. And that could be because I think we've we've now arrived at a point where we're no longer worried about whether the app overperforms or you know works through walls. And I think people are now quite sensibly realizing that the the problem with the app pinging so many people is the cases are so high right now. And so there are just lots and lots of close contacts of people with coronavirus. And it's, it's not the app's fault. You know, it's not some sort of technical glitch, even though ideally that telegraph story that you mentioned about it working through walls is not ideal. Like that's that's really not the main problem. The problem is that case rates are rising so rapidly. And so whether people delete the app or not, you don't solve the underlying problem. I, I'm just sort of amazed that it took people around Westminster like a full week of being silly about the app to realize now that obviously Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak be themselves pinged and be emphasizing the importance of isolating and the civic duty of using the app and all of that. But I think maybe some people around Parliament forgot that there was a, you know, there was a real life link between what the app was telling you to do and the real epidemiology of it. I think also, right, there is, not just in Westminster, but I think in general, right, there's a strong desire for restrictions to be over, right? Because they're, you know, emotionally draining, et cetera. Yeah, I, I can't remember who it was who first said this, but in many ways, right, lockdown, lockdowns are effective for the same reason that abstinence is, is, is an effective way of stopping sexually transmitted infections, right? You can do it, but it's not very pleasant. And after a while, observance just snaps. So I think there's there's definitely been a strong element of magical thinking. I am still surprised that the England cricket team Basically, they had to then produce a whole new new England cricket team to play Pakistan because the first one all had to go into self-isolation. And I don't understand how when that happened, more people in government didn't go, wait a second, just from an economic perspective, right? It's one thing for a cricket team where it turns out there are, I'm going to say 24 that number could be entirely wrong. There are a fresh 24 cricketers that you can bring out who are actually still good enough to fulfil the fixture and to beat Pakistan at the whatever the cricket thing was. The Ashes, maybe? I know it's not the Ashes cricket listeners. Are, I'm, 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 I'm being deliberately difficult when I say the Ashes. But, you know, the whatever it was. But if you're a restaurant or a theatre or a pub or basically almost any other business where you have have to have people coming in... You can't make up the economic costs of having to close. And because the overwhelming majority of the lockdown financial support is basically based around like the stuff that doesn't rot. If, you know, you're a theatre and you need to be able to sell people drinks and ice cream and suddenly you can't because you've had to close, you know, the circle bar and the stalls bar and you've only managed to keep one of the theatre bars open because all the rest of your staff have had to self-isolate well, then you are in difficulty. I do think that there is this sort of kind of huge looming meteor of a very economically difficult stop-start. Well, I keep saying stop-start summer, and I realise what is my reasoning for saying a stop-start summer rather than a stop-start however many months it is other than sort of willful optimism? Because, I mean, being, you know, part of the, the Moderna gang, I, I, I'm not getting my second jab until the 31st. Are you moving your second jab forward? Yeah, I think I will a bit, but I still won't be able to get it for a while because I only had mine two weeks ago. I realise that is, of course, why I've decided this will end in, in the summer is because I'm like, at that point, 
if, if I, one of the people who can't move forward their jab, have got jabbed, then almost everyone else, if, you, if you're on Pfizer, then you will have moved moved your jab forward by that point. But even even so, you've got this kind of, you know, huge economic problem, huge sort of political problem. And it is kind of surprising that, as you say, that, that no one seemed to have grasped what an issue this was going to be. Yeah, or just that, like, I would imagine that the Conservative whips have been getting in touch with everyone in government this weekend to make sure that they have the app installed. I just find it, it's, it's not the biggest issue in the world, but I do find it strange that they hadn't realised the potential for another hypocrisy, one rule for them, another rule for the rest of us, scandal, or or so on, a few weeks ago, particularly around the app. I mean, I suppose that's only that's only one small part of it because things are not in a in a great place in terms of cases at the moment and it looks like it's going to be quite a difficult summer I suppose the the politics of it are strange because I think that as you say it's not just that lots of people would like this you know would like to get COVID done I suppose and would just rather not have to think about it so much after over a year of quite intense restrictions and the sort of mental burden of that along with everything else it it does feel like politics has a lot to grapple with but the appetite isn't really there for the kind of conversations that that should be happening I don't think that there's as much of a a will within political journalism to cover the politics around the unlocking with the same sort of level of detail as before and I don't think that MPs are as minded to think about it carefully. I think lots of people are a bit worried and aware of the the trade-offs and the risks, but in a way it feels like there's just a big question mark hanging over the next few months and above all there's just not that much appetite to to discuss it. Does that tally with your experience? Yeah, I think it's also because this is the part of the year when I kind of start doing the sort of early stages of, well, making sure I've kept my spreadsheet updated so I can do my end of the year, well, got that wrong, well, what can we learn from that? Then one of the things that I thought in March 2020 was that this would only last till about now. Not because I thought we would necessarily have a vaccine. I thought there'd probably be some medical improvement, whether it was palliative treatment, whatever. But I just did think that, as we see with previous epidemics, right, polio, right, There was as much of a risk of like the permanent scars of polio in sort of the second sort of polio somewhere in the United States as the first. But people were just tired of having to flee and they wanted to be able to return to normal life. And you basically see that with all epidemics, right? People kind of go, okay, yeah, that's awful. But, you know, say la vie, life goes on or rather doesn't in some cases. I think it is that that attitude is also kind of infecting us as an industry. It's affecting government it's affecting the opposition parties there's this sort of strong kind of like oh you know this is horrible and this next bit's really difficult so is there some way we can sort of not do it and i think also there's well i think there's a really fascinating thing you look at the polls and britain is not polarized there is not a remain leave factor there is a moderate age correlation but even then there's not much of one in the the, the young who well, now bear the most risk in some ways. But, you know, the, the, the young who've borne the least risk throughout most of the pandemic being the most kind of like, I really just would like my life to go on. But 
I don't know if you notice this when people um, reply to our sort of free free morning email, right? But you have the sort of morning call, by the way, guys, if you haven't subscribed to it yet. Then you have sort of readers in you know, their late 80s who have been really worried they're going to die in lockdown. You have like readers, you know, who are students who've essentially had their whole university experience wiped out. People right at the start of their careers who would like to be able to be back in or, you know, would just like to be able to, you know, like meet people. And then you have, you know, people with small children, school-age children who are really worried about, well, basically, I think I'm yet to meet anyone with a child aged between zero to 21 who isn't, who isn't a bit about how they're, how this is affecting them. And I think that means then from a sort of ordinary person perspective, right, and talking to MPs, that's just, this, that they have the same kind of experiences in their constituency post bags, this kind of, oh, I really don't want to do anything to upset those people. Well, at the same point you have on Twitter and in the political class, these sort of kind of two tribes screaming at each other, you know, the kind of zero COVID people and the it's only the flu, don't worry about it, don't wear a mask people. And I think it kind of means that there's just this sort of deep reluctance on anyone's part to go, actually, let's let's return to treating this like a policy issue we need to think seriously about. And yeah, I very much do encounter that among MPs, and I think it is obviously quite worrying. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think, and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So this is a question from Alice. Thanks for for writing in, Alice. She asks, could the Boris Johnson government survive the re-imposition of COVID restrictions? So, of course, this recent unlocking was initially billed as cautious but irreversible. And over the past month or so, that language has really disappeared from Boris Johnson and his colleagues who I think are already paving the way for perhaps the imposition of some restrictions in the winter. I suppose what Alice is getting at here is that the government is under quite a lot of pressure from its its own backbenchers on this, that there is that group of MPs from really across different strands of thinking in the Conservative Parliamentary Party who have sort of banded together to urge for the easing of restrictions once the most vulnerable were vaccinated. And so I suppose my my simple answer to this question directly is that like I do think, I think with a, with a majority this big, the government could definitely survive having to reimpose restrictions. 
But where it's more interesting is just quite how fractious the Conservative Parliamentary Party is in every direction. And the fact that that's just one of very many issues where despite a huge majority, the government really is struggling to keep its MPs on side and they haven't been doing a very good job of that. So I suppose we, we can come on to talk about that. But Stephen, I suppose, what's, what's your answer to that question directly? Do you agree that the government could survive reimposing restrictions later in the year or indeed at a later date? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because obviously, as, as you lay out, right, we've moved from cautious and irreversible to not that cautious and probably not irreversible. But yeah, in terms of, you know, would the government see through its term? Yes. In terms of, I guess, you know, no one, yeah, it's odd because, for a long time after the 2012 Omnishamnals budget, you know, when they yeah, had the pasty tax, 50p rate, lots of people went, oh, that was the moment in the life of the David Cameron government after which it all went irrevocably wrong. And then in 2015, he won and everyone went, oh, it turned out it wasn't. Then a year later, he lost the Brexit referendum, which he in large part only had to hold because of how weakened he was after that budget. So maybe it was a sort of irretrievable moment. And of course, you could make a similar argument about Dominic Cummings' lockdown breach, right? In then he survived it, but I think it is undeniably true that this government has lost its political direction as a result of the events that spiralled out from that lockdown breach. And yeah, as you say, right, the Parliamentary Party is incredibly sort of fractious. Yeah, it's very rare. I mean, you will occasionally talk to a Conservative MP who does worry they might lose the next election. One of that quite small number said to me the other day, they said, look, the biggest threat we face is that we just flop about for for five years, go to the country, and then people suddenly just go, what have you guys done? They reached for, you know, Labour in 1970, where they said, you know, Labour won a big majority, having done quite a lot with not very much of a majority. Then, you know, did some sort of social stuff, the kind of Jenkins reforms. But, you know, in their words, they said then it kind of lolled about, not doing very much. Went to the country going, oh, look, we're great. We're going to be here forever. You know, look at my ratings versus his ratings. And then, you know, on election day went, oh, yikes, lads, we've lost. (laughs) And lost by, you know, we don't think of Ted Heath as particularly successful, but actually one of the biggest, the only shift from no majority to majority government, because obviously by 1997, the Conservatives had lost their majority over the course of that parliament. The only shift from majority to majority since 1951 or 1945, depending on how you you count. And I think, you know, lots of, you know, it's like, you know, the stuff we talked about in the first half, the various sort of parliamentary management. I think I can see how having to go, actually, we are going to have to do this again in the winter could be sort of the you know, the moment which we look back on and go, oh, yeah, after that, the government never recovered. In large part, because there is no such thing as a Johnsonite, you know, no one in the parliamentary party goes, oh, oh, you know, yes, things are going badly, but it's important that we stick with this, because if we don't stick with this, then we wouldn't do X. This is a political project built around the electoral appeal of the principle. And if the principle doesn't look electorally appealing, then I think suddenly all of the arguments about the, well, wouldn't we be doing more if we had Michael? Wouldn't we be doing more if we had Rob? Wouldn't we be doing more if we had trust? You know, what are we actually doing with this majority? I don't know if you ha- have this, but uh, I'm really struck out by the number of times that I'll speak to an MP who will say something like, I hate woke. I have no time for any of that stuff. I don't want the statues to come down. And then they basically see some variant on, but I didn't become an MP in order to tell the British Museum what to do. Yeah, it's so interesting that there are 
plenty of Conservative MPs, I think, who, for example, object to the phrase white privilege. And, you know, if they represent an overwhelmingly white constituency that doesn't have much ethnic diversity, but, you know, a constituency that also has a lot of deprivation, they in particular feel like that's not a helpful thing to say to their constituents. Yeah, as you say, they, they say that they hate this woke stuff, as they would put it. But not only do they not feel that they don't want the government getting involved with, for example, the British Museum and telling it what to do, I think that they find it, I suppose the only word I can think of is undignified. <laughs> I get that impression from just the median Tory MP that even if they're not massively into this sort of stuff either, they find it a slightly strange terrain for politics to be fought on. And that's just one of, I think, lots of concerns among Conservative MPs at the moment in all different directions. So we've talked before in the context of talking about the Lib Dems and the Blue Wall, there, there's, there are lots of concerns among Conservatives in more traditional Southern Tory seats that Boris Johnson is losing appeal and that their vote is very soft in those constituencies. But then I suppose there are concerns from from other people that it's just the government isn't really going to do very much. But I think the thing that really strikes me is that, I, I suppose it must have been about six months ago now, it seemed as though Downing Street was beginning to identify its problem in terms of the poor relationship between Boris Johnson and a lot of backbench MPs, and that lots of people had just been alienated in a way that was unnecessary. And so some of the rebellions that we saw last year, for example, over the, the plans for voting in the House of Commons, those were rebellions that could have, have been managed much better if they had just maintained good relationships with plenty of former ministers and so on. And we've talked about that before. But I think the strange thing is that we're quite a few months on from them correctly diagnosing that problem and Boris Johnson changing his Downing Street team with the departure of people like Dominic Cummings, new people being brought in. And, you know, it sounded as though there was going to be a concerted effort to work on that. And there have been some examples of that. So I think that groups of MPs, I mean, not this week because Boris Johnson's isolating, but small groups of MPs have been invited into Downing Street to, to speak with him. They have set up a lot of Zoom calls, I gather, between number 10 officials and backbench MPs to talk about particular issues. And then, of course, before the aid vote, Rishi Sunak rang around all of the potential rebels, which was appreciated by some MPs because, as one Tory MP put it, you know, Rishi's rather grand. So, you know, it was great that he made the effort to pick up the phone. But in general, despite those, those small efforts... I ask Tory MPs if they think it has improved and they just say no, like that these tweaks haven't really allayed their concerns. I suppose they're now quite worried about the advice that Boris Johnson is getting in number 10. So away from the perspective of Conservative MPs themselves, I think in Downing Street, Dan Rosenfield, Boris Johnson's chief of staff, hasn't been going down so well and has alienated quite a lot of other figures in there. And 
I think the criticism is that he's, as one person Downing Street put it to me, he's like Dominic Cummings, but without any sort of political direction. So he he throws his weight around, but as they as they put it, he sort of throws his weight around, but he sees it as his job to exert the will of the prime minister and enact Boris Johnson's vision rather than having a vision of his own, which of course makes sense if you come in to do that job as Downing Street chief of staff, except that as we know, Boris Johnson in some ways doesn't have a a fully formed vision of his own. And so part of what Dominic Cummings did was to provide some of that direction there are plenty of people in Downing Street who are a bit unimpressed by Dan Rosenfield, who I think maybe have been annoyed by him just for small personal reasons over a period of months. Uh, but then also, I think with the the Super League controversy that happened a few months ago, I think people are worried about the part that Dan Rosenfield felt in that. I think he, you know, he gave an early indication that Downing Street might support those proposals, and then they proved to be so politically toxic that Number Ten couldn't roll in behind them but I think people are a bit worried about actually the new people at the top of the number 10 operation and in terms of then how Boris Johnson and his government make it through the next term I think that's exactly right that seems likely that you know with a majority that big he will struggle on for a long time but but how much will he be able to actually do and and how bad will it get with this quite toxic mood. The Rosenfield thing is really interesting because someone in downtown was saying, yeah, the thing is, is with Dom, they said, provided you just use the right keywords and like, you know, smiled at him in the right way, he would go, ah, this is one of the brilliant people. And they said, and you could kind of just sort of survive because you understood what the direction was. They said, well, the weird thing is, is now you kind of have like a similar dynamic, but where they're like the chief of staff doesn't understand what the direction is because yes yeah, so there, there isn't one i think the interesting thing is is when dan rosenfield and allegra stratton came into the downing street setup and dominic Cummings and lee kane left a conservative mp said to me well the, the big difference is you can't do this twice because you do it once and everyone goes oh thank goodness the shouty people have left the shouty people were the problem and i mean the shouty people did have their own problems not least the fact that it's not really clear what they accomplished by being shouty than they couldn't have accomplished by being, you know, given that the record of the shouty people is is one quite good research institute and nothing else, it's not really clear that that is a comparably good record to, say, Jonathan Powell in his first year in office, or even like Gavin Barwell, who had no majority, probably did accomplish more with less. But I think the interesting thing is, I, I don't think that MP was right, despite the fact I did think they were right at the time. And I'm fairly certain that when they listen to this podcast, they'll phone and go, I, I think that's wrong. And I can't believe you've traduced me. I'll be anonymously. I do think there is a problem that the more times than there's this kind of like Downing Street has rebooted, the more times people go, oh, wait, the the underlying thing you can't reboot is the politics then has to come from the principle, which I mean is one of the fascinating mirror images between the two parties at the moment, right? In the almost, as I say almost everyone, actually I genuinely am yet to meet. So if you're a Labour MP listening to this and you are one of the people, you are this person, please do get in touch with me. I'm yet to meet anyone connected in the Labour Party who doesn't think that the new leader's office is better. But the underlying question is still, okay, well, what about the stuff that comes from here? Yeah, can, can Keir provide that direction? 
And I think the only argument I have heard for an early election that has been remotely persuasive, even though it still remains, as far as I can tell, an idea that exists solely in Labour circles, and it now turns out seems to have metastasized and spread into the Greens a bit as well. The only persuasive argument I've heard from it, heard for it from a Labour person is he clearly doesn't enjoy this very much. He clearly does want to be able to have beaten Cameron. Like he wants to be able to go, look, I'm the only person. You know, no Conservative since Margaret Thatcher has been re-elected. Yeah, the party has, but they've, they've had to change horses. They said, so he'll just want to speed forward that because, you know, they're not having a good time and it's not going well. I, I still just think that feels like a fairy story to me. But they are in a weird place at the moment because they have managed to combine like political success with not so much policy failure, but sort of like policy absence. And it's easy to forget, but most MPs and most people who work you know, for the government, yeah, most special advisors, et cetera, et cetera, do actually, they, they do actually want to do something in the off years between elections. And I think then the the big question that is going to get louder around this setup is, is this government going to do anything outside of the stuff that is you know, very much driven by Rishi Sunak in the Treasury? Because if the answer is no, then I think then, yeah, there will start to be eruptions. I think that's a, a good parallel to draw, actually, that with Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, there are questions about the, the politics of the leader himself and whether he can impose enough of a vision and a strategy in different ways, different problems. But there's a definite parallel there. It's, it's interesting as well. I, I was speaking to a Conservative MP who was expressing exactly that, that concern that the government just might not do very much in this parliament. It's, you know, it's already been quite a while and not very much has been achieved. They were saying that, you know, the problem is that the Labour Party is so crap, no one sees how crap we are. And that they were saying that they would actually like to see a stronger Labour Party. And that, you know, they were they were reminiscing fondly about the days when Tony Blair was leader of the opposition and that, you know, you that you would come into work with a spring in your step because they kept the Conservatives on the run and they were just saying that a sharper opposition makes government better. I think in in part actually this Conservative MP blames weak opposition from Labour for this kind of sludge that the, and sort of this directionless, confused Conservative strategy at the moment that I think maybe we, with the big caveat that coronavirus has made normal politics quite different. I think maybe we're just not living through a period of very good politics in terms of a very sharp government and a very sharp opposition doing the best that they each can and demanding better of each other. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our political editor, Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate and subscribe. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.